Hi, it's Carolina. I'm so excited that you could join us on the City Point Redcliffe podcast. You're just about to hear a message from one of our incredible preaching team, and I know you're going to be encouraged and inspired by what you hear. If it does encourage you, why don't you share it with someone who you know might need to hear it as well? And make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of the messages that are uploaded every single week. And for now, sit back and enjoy. I hope you get blessed. We are, we are in a, an annual theme called Up and Out, and this is exactly what it sounds like. We are, it's about looking up to God, it's gazing upon Him, and uh, letting our hearts, our worship, our attention, um, our prayers find their way in direction up to God. And as we do so, well, we'll find ourselves going out, out of the things we once found bound us, out of the chains that once held us together. Uh, and we were finding ourselves stepping into seeing other people outside of our own usual comfort zone uh, to see them set free. Oh man, this is going to be so annoying. It is hot, but I spilt something on my shirt. <laughs> I thought soap being soap would wash off. Turns out soap didn't wash off. It wasn't even like my baby. It was just me, so I can't even, I'm not even going to blame it on Lucas. <laughs> but we find ourselves in January and February looking at specifically Upper Room. And Upper Room, it is an event. Uh, within Acts 2 that we're actually going to open up tonight, and it is indicative of the secret place, the place where we get to lean in uh, to who God has called us to be, lean into Him in prayer, uh, no one else is there, and we'll lean into some of these characteristics tonight. But in the upper room, we find the scenario which ends up birthing what we understand the church to be. We see a, a, a young man named Peter, uh, who we've it's a bit of a roller coaster in terms of a story, and I appreciate that because my life can be a bit of a roller coaster sometimes. And so, thank God for Peter, it helps me. And uh, we're actually going to do a bit of an origin story of Peter building up to this moment in Acts 2. And everyone likes an origin story, except in X Men, they weren't great. As much as I wanted to love Wolverine. <laughs> anyway. Peter, we find him, um, and he is chosen by Jesus, and he has a good time. He catches a lot of fish, starts following the Lord, becomes a fisher of man. And uh, Peter gets a bit of an interesting rap sometimes. He's a bit of a hothead, starts cutting off people's ears every now and again. Jesus has to put on ears. Oh, gosh. Uh, he, he denies Jesus a few times, only to come in repentance to Jesus. Uh, he speaks out boldly, and... He's actually supposed, to, he, we regard him to be the oldest of the disciples. They're all a bunch of like teenagers and tweens and entering in. And Peter steps up in Acts chapter 3, or Acts chapter 2. And uh, we're going to read from Acts 2. And uh, just to cover the whole chapter, we're just going to read some passages from this whole chapter just to piece it together and find out what is significant about this. And so when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled, say filled, 
with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 5, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. I need to use that word more in my common tongue, bewilderment, because each one heard their own language. Jumping down to verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, started making fun of them, saying, they have had too much wine. Peter then stood up. Here's our man, Peter. Stood up with the 11 and raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Peter then proceeds to preach a boss message. And he just does like a 30,000-foot scope over the Old Testament, picking out prophets, speaking out prophecies, and saying that the time is now, so they need to see that part of their responsibility is to understand repentance and come before him. Then after this boss message, the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom come to the Lord will, um, all whom the Lord our God will call. With other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from the corrupt generation. Verse 41, so 120 people are those in the upper room. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 were added to the number that day. The title of the message tonight is called Famous in the Upper Room. Famous in the Upper Room. And uh, when I was a young lad, and uh, there was actually a I was in youth ministry and actually got into youth via the sound desk. That's how I find my way in. Um, I cannot operate that sound desk, though. So, Ray, don't put me on the roster. But if you would like to be on roster, please talk to Ray. <laughs> and I found myself on the sound desk, very analog, good times. And that's my entry point into youth ministry, into this context. And I went to a youth camp, got saved, all these things. And I, at the age of 14, asking a lot of questions around God, finding the transition from a family faith to a personal faith in that journey. And during this time that there was actually a, a lady by the name of Vicki Simpson. And if you know the name, you know that she's actually an op operator in the prophetic. And during a youth night, she actually called me out as a 14-year-old punk kid and started to prophesy over my life and prophesied a bunch of things, some of which I sort of remember. My mom probably remembers better. She's good at those moments. And I remember vividly, for some reason, she called me a little rooster. But uh, I wasn't, I was not six foot two at that point in time. But I sounded like this. So it was a very jarring experiencing as a... a <laughs> A pubescent child. And so we find ourselves, and she prophesied a bunch of things. And funnily enough, some of them involved now. It's good fun. But we get this interaction between Jesus and Peter initially where Jesus actually speaks, hey, Peter, you're going to be a rock. 
you're going you're gonna to speak to people, you're going to be fishers of men, and he finds himself getting pinged around by his different desires, and then finally he stands before a bunch of people and sees 3,000 saved, stands in the public space, and 3,000 people are saved. That's a good day. That's a good day at work. Um, even like if you're like, ah, oh, I'm not a pastor, 3,000 of your co-workers being saved, good day. That's like all of a couple of the schools around here, one day, one message, let's repent, let's go to Jesus. What an incredible revival moment within history. And we can look at this, and I know as a young man hearing prophetic words, hearing things spoken, my desire was, God, let, let, it wouldn't it be great if I could speak a word and 3,000 were saved, or God, I, I want to desire this, this essence of significance, and we see Peter, he actually becomes significant. He becomes known by the people. Acts 19 even recalls him. Um, people would bring handkerchiefs to him, and they'd take it from him, and they would just put their handkerchief on the sick person, and they'd be healed. Crazy. Like, I don't carry a handkerchief. I throw away my tissues because COVID. <laughs> but... We see this journey of a man who becomes significant and he becomes known, but before he was a public figure, there was the upper room. Before there was the 3,000, there was the upper room. Before there was the preaching, there was the upper room. Before the public significance, there was a secret significance. There was a private significance. And the the intention, the desire for significance within the human heart is real. You go talk to maybe some 11 to 14-year-olds, what do you want to be? I want to be famous. I want to be a streamer because streaming what, whatever nowadays, there's a sense of I want to be publicly known. There's the social media. There's attention. There's popularity. There is being significant in front of people. And so I want to frame it. The desire for significance isn't evil. But it's the question of significant to who? Yeah, wow. Significant to who? Because if it's the desire to be significant to the people on your social media, that's the wrong direction, my friend. If it's significant even to the people in this auditorium, that's the wrong direction, my friend. There is one sole destination, this one sole directive of this desire that turns it into a healthy ambition. It is, I want to be significant. I want to be famous to the audience of one, my Father, my God. I don't want to be famous in front of the 3,000. I want to be famous in the upper room. I want to be known not by names of people in the future. I want to be known by my Father right now. I want to be famous not for the 3,000. I want to be famous for my Father. And so we see this, this don't entrust yourself to man, but entrust yourself to God. And my question for you tonight is, where do you want to be famous? Where do you want to be famous? Have you received words over your life? Have you received dreams? Maybe it's business. Maybe it's looking at how your family operates. Maybe you want to do certain things. Maybe there is recognition in the course of your journey. But who do you want to be famous for? To whom do you want to be famous? And so 
I want to be famous in the upper room. And so my, my desire tonight is not to deliver a great informative message, but I want to speak beyond the intellect, and I want to speak and let the Spirit speak to your spirit and create a desire. Because I can't tell you how to pray, but at least I could create a fire that you can. Because when Jesus walked with the people, there was a fire that when he departed, they said, didn't our hearts burn within us? whilst he was explaining things. And so, where do you want to be famous? My first idea here is I want to say that history is changed by who, people who are famous in the upper room. History, not like, not like just everyday life, not just your singular workplace, not just a couple of people, but history is altered by people who are famous in the upper room. Moses... And uh, Pastor Carolina shared this last week, this passage, and I don't think it's on the screen, but Exodus 33, 8 through 11 says, And when Moses went out of the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their own tents, watching Moses until he'd entered the tent, being the, the tabernacle where he met God, the presence of God having moved into the neighborhood of Israel. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance. And the Lord spoke with Moses. Sit on that for a second. The Lord wants to speak with Moses. The Lord wants to speak with you. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Sit on that. Speaks face to face with a friend. The same interaction. Not even the same interaction I'm having with you. Way more personal. Not a microphone in his hands telling you what you should do, but face-to-face -face with a friend engaging. Relationship, real, vulnerable, authentic, honest. Face-to-face -face with a friend. And this is where Pastor Carolina touched on, but then Moses would return to the camp at his young age. Joshua did not leave the tent. He lingered that little bit longer. Moses, who became the archetype for the most influential person in Israel's history, apart from God themselves, was significant because he had a face-to-face -face interaction. He was famous in the upper room. And in fact, there's a, a story where he says, God, show me your glory. Like he, he's, there's this pursuit, not of understanding just how to lead, to structure a strategy, but God, I want to see you. I want to be famous in the upper room. We see David. As he, as he lingered in the field, as he prepared his heart, before he was a warrior, he was a worshiper. Before he was a king, he was a servant. Before he was public, he was private, insignificant, and unseen. He pursued the, uh, the upper room, that secret, unknown place. And I want to read a, an excerpt right now. I might use the stool for this, because otherwise I am not going to sit down. An excerpt, and it's... Uh, it's actually from a book that's speaking about histories of revival. And I'm going to mention a name here, a name you will never have heard, and a name you will not remember. But it's a name that is significant in heaven. Let me scroll because it's all the way at the bottom of my notes because it was too much in the chunk. <laughs> the year is 1857, and a man of prayer, Jeremiah Lampfia, don't know that name? Won't remember that name. 
started a prayer meeting in the upper room of a Dutch Reformed church building in Manhattan. In response to his advertisement, only six out of the population of a million showed up. But the following week, there were 14, then 23, when it was decided to meet every day for prayer. By late winter, they were filling the Reformed Church, then the Methodist Church, then the Episcopalian Church. In February and in March of 1858, every church and public hall in downtown New York was filled. Mr. Greeley, the famous editor, sent a reporter with horse and buggy, that gives you a time, racing around to the prayer meetings to see how many men were praying. In one hour, he could only get to 12 of the meetings, but he counted over 6,000 men in attendance. Then a landslide of prayer began, which overflowed to the churches in the evenings. People began to be converted, 10,000 a week in New York City alone. The movement spread through New England, the church bells bringing people to prayer at the hours of 8, 12, and 6 every day. The revival raced up the Hudson and down the Mohawk where the Baptists, for example, had so many people to baptize that when they went down to the river, they had to cut a big hole in the ice and baptize them in the cold water. There's a note, when the Baptists do that, they really are on fire. (laughs) When the revival reached Chicago, a young shoe salesman went to the superintendent of a congregational church and asked if he might teach Sunday school. The superintendent said, I'm sorry, young fellow, I only have six, I already have 16 teachers, too many, but I'll put you on the waiting list. The young man insisted, no, I have to do something now. Well, start a class. How do I start a class? Get some boys off the street, but don't bring them here. Take them out to the country, and after a month, you'll have control of them. So then bring them in. They will be your class. He took them to a beach on Lake Michigan and taught them the Bible verses and the Bible games, and he took them to the congregational church after the month. The name of the young man was D.L. Moody. And that was the beginning of his ministry that lasted 40 years. There's a Bible college named after him. For instance, the Trinity Episcopalian Church in Chicago had 120 members in 1857. In 1860, 1,400. That was typical of the churches. More than a million people were converted to God in one year out of the population of 30 million. Then that same revival jumped the Atlantic, appearing in Ulster, Scotland and Wales, and England, parts of Europe, South Africa and South India, anywhere There was an evangelical cause. It sent mission pioneers to many countries. Effects were felt for 40 years, having begun in a movement of prayer, and it was sustained by a movement of prayer. Have you heard the name Jeremiah Lamphia? Because God knows it. I didn't know it. I didn't know it until I read that. Who do you want to be famous for? Because I want to be famous in the upper room. There's six facts about the upper room I want to talk about briefly. They're in no particular order because there's six. I just pulled them from different parts and this is where we go. But the the first fact about the hidden room, uh, upper room, is that it's hidden. The upper room is a hidden place. It is in the passage preceding the story where the 
the apostles were baptized in the Holy Spirit and filled and went out and preached to the 3,000. It said that Jesus said, hurry up and wait before you go out. And they ascended the upper room, 120 in their midst, and they prayed and they fasted for whatever God had promised. They didn't know. They were just waiting on what God was sending. But it was away from attention and it was out of sight, and in the upper room, it is devoid of the attention of men. It is vulnerable, it is honest. It is a place that you cannot be fake, and it is a place that is unglorious to everyone else because they never see it. It's like the root system of a tree. It's down in the dirt where no one wants to be. It's unseen until the storm comes. But it is when the storm comes, it is only known, or before the storm comes, it is only known to God and that man. It is hidden, it is unseen. Bishop Garlington says, if the light that shines in you is greater than the light that shines on you, the light that shines on you will consume you. So in this hidden place, in this private place, in this upper room is where everything is built. It is unworshipped, it is unhelpful by anyone else except your Father who sees what is done in secret will glorify what is done in heaven. It is a place, number two, of waiting. Hurry up and wait, Jesus said. And waiting is an impassive activity because they were wrestling and they were restfully wrestling. Seems contradiction, but it's resting in the time of God, it's resting in the truth and the courage of what God has, but it's wrestling. Wrestling with God. I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not leave here until the Spirit has a hold of my heart. I will not let go of this nation until we see more people set free and saved. I am waiting on the Lord, wrestling in the secret unseen place. It is a place of long term. In a time of two-minute noodles, getting frustrated when old mate cuts you off on the road because it'll make you a second later. In a career development made by job transition every two to four years, long-term direction and long-term remaining is so uncommon. But the Word of God is like a seed. And if you microwave seeds, you get popcorn. You don't get trees. It's a long-term deposit that has to be cultivated. I was, I was talking with a, 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 a spiritual father, a mentor, and in his, he's in his 70s, and he's, he's a bit loose, and he's funny, so it's amazing. <laughs> but talking to him, and he's just, you know, you talk to the father of the faith, and they just know. There's no question, but there's just an absolute confidence that they know who they are in God. And I'm asking him, how did you get here? He's like, mate, my friend, I've been following Jesus for 50 more years than you. What do you think I did for 50 years? He said, you wait. You wait and see. You wait and see what will be because it's a long-term deposit. You can't microwave your faith. This is my favorite from the list here. Number four, it's unreplicable. You cannot mimic someone else's prayer life. You can only discover your own. I, I, um, 
I like learning random things for no apparent reason. I know how to juggle. I don't know why. I just like juggling. <laughs> the, other, the other week, I had this thought, remember when in, you're in primary school and you're playing with the computers and they had that app Minesweeper? And you just open it until you click, until you blow up. And you're like, how do you actually play that game? So I YouTubed it. Because YouTube apparently is a great source of truth. And so I learned how to play Minesweeper. I just, but the way I learned is I just replicated what they were showing me on the screen. My latest fight is chess, by the way. So if any chess, come see me after. I'd love to play. But there's the idea of just being, I need to see and I need to mimic what you're doing until I see it done in my own life. But there's this quote from Toza. And it says this, there being the room of prayer, the upper room, every man must be an original. Every man must be original. For true prayer cannot be imitated, nor can it be learned from someone else. I remember hearing a story about a pastor who was interviewing, uh, I believe it was a Korean church leader for a magazine, a Christian magazine, and it was all about the upper room. It was all about, tell me about your habits, the cultivation of your, your secret place. And he sits down and uh, presents him with this question. So tell me about your secret place. And he says, sorry, I can't do that. That's too private. That's just for me and God. You can see that there's something of such sacredness, of such secretness, of such value that's unreplicable to someone else. And uh, I remember talking to Pastor Sam like nine years ago. And I was talking about this because I was like, how do I become more spiritual? Because that was the question. And before I'd learned this, and I was reading people like Spurgeon and uh, Calvin, this being, man, I'm, I'm busy, so I need to spend an extra hour in prayer a day. And you're like, ah, yes, that's so glorious. Let me become a monk. Wait, I can't become a monk. And he said, mate, I, it's not about the quantity, it's about the quality. It's about the intimacy, it's about the moment. And so whatever your prayer life is here today, you can't judge someone else according to your journey. Everyone is individual. Everyone is unreplicable. Everyone has a unique call and desire for them. I'm going to skip over the number five, which was deep, being unsuperficial and a couple of other things. And I want to land on this. The upper room is a place of power. It says, go into the upper room and you will receive power from the Spirit. Then you'll be empowered to go and spread the good news. Uh, Charles Spurgeon is quoted um, in his, his book, Lectures to My Students. Great book if you need. And he recalls this story. It says, a certain preacher whose sermons converted many men by scores received a revelation from heaven that not one of the conversions was owing to his talents or eloquence, but all the prayers of an illiterate lay brother who sat on the pulpit steps pleading all the time for the success of the sermon. See, it's in the upper room that things actually move. See, Peter spoke to the 3,000, but it wasn't his salesman pitch that caused their heart to be cut to the heart. It was his time on his knees in the upper room that invited the power of the Spirit to move in and through him in such a way that 3,000 found themselves weeping and calling on the name of Jesus and being baptized. You can have all the good looks, you can have all the talent, you can have all the 
metrics of success that the world calls for, but you can't change someone's soul. You can't alter someone's spirit. You can't even change your husband or your wife's mind. (laughs) You need the Spirit of God. Don't ask Him to change your wife or husband's mind for some sort of manipulative power. That won't work. (laughs) But it is in the upper room. It's in the secret place. It's in the uniqueness that is where the power comes. Another Spurgeon quote, the minister who does not earnestly pray over his work and don't think minister being pastor, anyone who is a Christ follower is a minister. The minister who does not earnestly pray over his work must surely be vain and conceited man. He acts as though he he was sufficient of himself and therefore needed not to appeal to God. Can you get the sense that God is inviting you? There is an invitation not to the public for the sake of the public, not even to the private for the sake of the public, but for the private for the sake of Him. He's calling you. He's saying, come, come away with me. Come be with me. And it's unglorious. It's unseen. But it's so real. It's so rich. And it's in that place that you will grow down deep into who Christ is and you will be unshaken and unshakable by anything, anyone, any circumstance that comes your way. And having your roots go down deep into Him, you will bear fruit that will reap other people's souls and transformation in the people around you. So, can we stand tonight? I actually want to close with a, a written prayer from from uh, an old school Christian and it's going to be on the screen but I just pray you just take it in this is my prayer this is what God is calling us to pray and it's it's called a prayer of discomfort or discontentment may God bless you with discomfort at easy answers hard hearts half truths and superficial relationships so that you may live deep from within your heart where God's spirit dwells May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, and war, so you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. May God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world and in your neighborhood, so that you will courageously try what you don't think you can do, but in Jesus Christ, you'll have the strength necessary to do. May the Lord bless you and remind you that we are all called to continue God's redemptive work of love and healing in God's place and in and through God's name, in His Spirit, continually creating and breathing new life and grace into everything and everyone we touch. My friends, where do you want to be famous? Do you want to be significant and known to the people and have your name forgotten in a generation? Or do you want to get to the the gates of heaven and be welcomed in saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little, here's much. Come and enjoy my joy. Thank you for listening. We pray that this message inspires you to unmistakably influence your world for good and for God. Go ahead and share it with a friend. And can I invite you to connect with us on one of our many social media platforms as well. 
Most importantly, if you made a decision to follow Jesus, I want to say congratulations. This is the beginning of a life-changing journey. We'd love to see you at one of our many City Point Church services around the world this Sunday. And you can find out more about our service times and locations at citypointchurch.com. We would be so thrilled to see you there.